Interest is, is something that's hardwired. So everyone has the potential to develop at least some interest in a subject area. And that actually changes the tables. I want to start with something that listeners, especially teachers, probably already know. Interest is really important to education. The more you're interested in what you're learning, the better your learning outcomes will be. In fact, a lot of studies bear this out, including studies done by my guest today, Kay Ann Renninger, who currently chairs the Educational Studies Department at Swarthmore College. Ann started off as a high school English teacher, and there she developed an interest in interest. She was really interested in why kids are interested in what they're interested in, how interest works, and especially how teachers can help students become interested in different things and whether that was even possible. So today on the show then, we're going to talk about a lot of those issues. How much can a teacher, let's say, affect a student's interest? If a student isn't interested in math today, what does that mean for later? Can a, can a teacher do certain things that might get that student interested in math where they weren't before? Or is interest really kind of set in stone? Fortunately for us, and goes over all of the things we know about how teachers actually can affect student interest. It's probably not foolproof, but there are things that teachers can do to help foster student interest. So this will be a really good episode for teachers. Last thing I should mention, if you find this conversation, well, interesting, you should look at a book that Anne co-wrote with Suzanne Heady in 2015 called The Power of Interest for Motivation and Engagement. It's an absolute compendium of information about how interest works, its effect on learning, and how teachers can potentially uh, help affect interest in students. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Anne Renninger, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good. I'm really excited to have you on the show um, because I have been really fascinated by the role of interest in education and what it is and how to affect it as a teacher. And uh, hopefully we can get into a lot of that stuff today. Hopefully you can answer some of the questions that I have and I'm sure other people have. I'm glad um, to try. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. first of all, let's talk about what are we even talking about when we talk about interest? Because I think we all kind of intuitively know what interest is, but when you really try to define it, it's a really squishy idea. It's hard to really put your finger on. So as best we know, what are we talking about when we talk about interest? Okay, so there are at least five different sort of approaches to talking about interest, all of which share similar characteristics. And my own work has actually focused on the development of interest. So that's starting with an initial triggering, something catches a person's attention, sort of, and continues to develop and can actually become what we talk about as a well-developed interest. But let me just tell you a little bit about like what you would see if someone had a developed interest. And then I'm going to actually, walk, I can walk you through mm. the different approaches to interest because that might yeah, actually help to... Um, explain what it is that I'm talking about. Sure. So if someone has a developed interest, typically they frequently engage it. Um, they do so with more depth. They voluntarily are engaging it, even outside of class. They will opt to be writing poetry or, or sharing ideas. Um, and they will do, do the activity independently, um, even if others in a group are not. Um, what we see when a person has a more developed interest is that it's also, uh, it tends to be aligned with a number of other variables. So in other words, they're good at goal setting, they have high self-efficacy, um, they are able to self-regulate to attain their goals, they're um, 
often they identify with the subject matter. And the other end of the spectrum is people who are like less developed in their interest, may not even know that something has triggered their interest. Um, they don't imagine that they could have an interest. They don't actually feel self-efficacious that they, they think they could do it. They certainly are not re- self-regulating with respect to any kinds of goals that they've set and they don't identify. And so that spectrum is the one that um, is actually really interesting and I think important for education. So now that's a developmental approach to interest and it's presuming that um, both cognition and affect are a part of it. So in other words, it's about knowledge development and it's also about the sort of valuing that goes along with um, knowledge development. And it's usually accompanied by positive feelings. Um, That could be recognizable to you, but there are other approaches to talking about interest. And often these are employed when people are doing research and are trying to talk about something in the moment. So they may actually talk about interest as an emotion, and they're really talking about you know how much a person feels positively or how much they like something. Um, interest as a value can be also targeted, and there what you're doing is you're looking at sort of the um, this, the appreciation for understanding that content, but in in the sense of task value, it is really much more about liking and the liking that's necessary because it's related to some other action that you're taking. It's um, sometimes also described as a belief in that sense. Um, task characteristics would be when you know there's a really rich problem that could have um, a test characteristic that really is attractive to people I study um, Mm -hmm. who have developed interests because there's lots of things to be worked out, right? But test characteristics can also be about like something being really loud or something being very bright. And those those characteristics can grab attention. People have been very interested in that in the um, online uh, context. And then there's vocational interest. And that actually is like the other end of the spectrum. So the person, you know, it, it's not about developing a person's interest so much as in vocational work or counseling, people usually will work with a set of abilities or skills that an individual has and try to map those. So there are tests that enable a person to make an informed choice about the fact that oh, they have X number of math skills, and that means that they could be doing engineering, architecture, any of a number of jobs, right? So it's not about like developing the interest to become a doctor, but rather it's about in the moment, your skills and abilities mapped to to a certain set of sort of jobs or um, sort of occupational uh, uh, roles, I guess it is. It's roles within jobs. And um, and so then interest is used in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, is that, is this related at all? I think in the development kind of language about interest, you distinguish in some of your work between uh, situational interest, which is kind of like the, in the moment interest, something catches your eye that looks okay. interesting and personal interest, which is like the kind of enduring, uh, interest of like, I can't keep myself away from this. This is awesome. Right. And so Yes and yes. Okay, so there's a interesting um, story here, maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, 
there, we made a very clear distinction between situational interest and well-developed interest. And you're right that um, situational interest, you know, as the sort of label suggests, is what happens in the moment, right? Or um, sort of in shorter time. And whereas what's called sort of individual interest or more personal interest as you're describing it, tends to be something that a person has made a particular connection to and is more well-developed. What's interesting is that as we um, studied the development of interest, and so this is a number of people, not just me, um, what we have figured out is that situational interest actually sets in motion the possibility of the development of an individual interest. We also now know, which we didn't at the time, that as interest continues to develop, there's always situational contexts, right? So if we go to the case of like physics learners, um, a study that I did with some colleagues and um, included, focused on um, undergraduate uh, students in physics classes. And one of the things that you could see is that students who had less developed interest in physics were making sort of more um, connections at an individual level. They could be supported to engage because there were um, sets of things that on which they were focusing on in that class that supported them to be able to make immediate connections to physics. That's a really different place to be than a person who has a more developed interest in physics to begin with Right. And so those kind of triggers to think about like cell membrane potential, you know, are not so interesting to you if you already know them, but they become interesting if all of a sudden what you do is to unpack the math that's under them. And so by making it more challenging for the person who has a more developed interest, you're actually creating a situational interest, even though the person also has a more developed interest. And I yeah, think that, I'm sorry. Oh, it sounds like there's a lot of factors that are kind of involved in um, in in interest in something. There's, you know, does it solve a problem for you? Um, is it novel? It, it just sounds like there's a whole lot of ways that you can come about uh, developing an interest. Right, and yes, that's exactly right. Um, I think it also starts to explain why sometimes it feels like somebody's done something to promote interest, and they wonder why it isn't exactly working. You know, and at this point, again, there's a fair amount of research to sort of start to explain, you know, why it is that different approaches to interest will yield a particular result, or why it is that even though a teacher feels as if he or she is really working hard on something, maybe they've missed one piece that also could be part of the story. I think the important thing here is that um, to know that neuroscience is actually established at this point that um, interest is, is something that's hardwired. So everyone has the potential to develop at least some interest in a subject area. And that actually changes the tables. I mean, it used to be um, teachers could actually say, uh, this person has interest, this person doesn't have interest, and, and focus on the ones with interest if, if they chose to. Um, and now it's really more about, okay, so what do we need to be doing in order to support interest to develop? recognizing that everybody's not going to be completely interested in everything at the same level, but, but it, enough interest will actually 
make it so much easier for people to sustain attention, set goals, use learning strategies, regulate behaviors. You know, there are just a number of things that get, you know, sort of uh, in, invoked once you actually get interest triggered. Yeah, it, it brings up something that has, has always or, or of late bothered me about how I hear people just generally talk about interest, which is on this really almost macro level, it's like you have someone has an like interest or they don't or whatever, or this kid's not interested in learning or something like that. It's and, and it seems like the two problems with that are number one, it's it's like they're treating interest as a trait that you either have or you don't. And number two, they're treating it, like you said, in this fatalistic way of like, well, you're just not interested in math. And that's just, you're never going to be able to get interested in math because you're not already. Uh, it, it feels like those are two strange ways to talk about interest. Right. Um, so Suzanne Heady and I had um, written a book. I've actually done a lot of collaboration with Suzanne. And one of the things we did um, in this book was to sort of outline the kinds of things that are at this point understood as misconceptions. So, and one of them is the idea that interest functions like a trait. I mean, because in fact, it is completely malleable. We have a lot of evidence of that at this point. What we know is that interest, especially if you're thinking about it as a variable that develops, it sort of exists in the interaction of the person and the environment, right? So it's how the person is positioned to work with particular subject area, whether that's physics or learning to play the piano or you know, um, kicking a soccer ball around. The the issue in some sense is really how what kind of supports are in place to enable the person to make the connection. Clearly, you need to have some capacity to kick the soccer ball and you have to be able to hear if you are playing the piano, you know. But, but there, I mean, it's not like you don't bring a biological self to this, but there is a sense in which how the environment supports a person to seriously engage makes a huge difference. With the neuroscience piece, I, I just find this fascinating. What happens is that, so early on, a person may not actually imagine that he or she could have an interest. And in fact, maybe they've had a terrible experience with mathematics, for example, right? And so they're convinced they're not a math person. Great. You know, you just start there. That's what they're doing, right? But on the other hand, you don't actually need to let go of that, right? Basically, it's about understanding what they do understand. And when you actually make a connection to, and how is it that you're understanding that? Or how did you think about that? You know, and then sharing. And well, you know, when I think about it, this is the kind of thing I think about, sort of taking seriously what it is that they're in a position to do at the time actually is a huge um, beginning and then the other piece that needs to happen, right? So we know that we're hardwired to um, sort of develop interest. For us to develop that interest in mathematics, what that would basically mean is that the person needs to make enough of a connection. So not only do we need to trigger their interest, but we need to support them to sustain their engagement with mathematics, okay, long enough so that it activates the reward circuitry, right? And once that happens, then interest, you know, it's almost like interest becomes its own reward because seeking behaviors that follow are the very things that, you know, mean that that person continues to pursue something because they want to figure it out. And that gap is where the educator can make a huge difference. Right. It can't be, it can't be kind of a one and done, like this activity was fun, but now we're going to do something else and not touch this again. It's like, okay, but 
now that you have a situational interest triggered a little bit, we can kind of keep going with this and, and keep reward, keep activating that reward, uh, that intrinsic reward feeling. But you know yeah. something I should actually also clarify though, that the time frame for this is actually an interesting one. It's sort of perplexing at some level. Okay. And that's that, you know, you can activate an interest or trigger an interest for someone. And it could be that it has to do with how self-related the connection is for them. That actually that 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 may inform how fast they move from a situational to having a more developed interest. We don't hmm. really know that. What we know is I have some data, for example, where we know it took four years for a child to move from having a triggered interest to really designing, in this case, her own science experiments. Right. right. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are other people that will like within a couple of hours, actually, an interest is activated. They're actually working on something. And it's not typically the case that interest will develop that fast, but yeah. as has, but it can. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the conditions and the, you know, the learning conditions and who the person is and what other background knowledge they have that they're bringing into some new interest. It's, right. yeah, and that's the complexity. You know, I think of it as a big puzzle, so it's fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, do we know what effect interest has on learning? I know that the, you know, when I kind of did research just to prepare for teaching my own classes, I don't think I found a single study that said that there was a negative or neutral relationship between interest and academic outcomes. But I did find that there was some variance in terms of how much interest plays a part in academic outcomes. I saw as low as, well, maybe it gives you a 10% difference in the results. I think I've seen as high as it probably gives you like 40% difference in the results. Um, do, do we know what effect interest generally has on learning? I think, again, you know, it's going to... Uh, the answer is um, yes, it has a positive effect, and I'll then complicate that, right? So in the physics work that I, I was sort of alluding to earlier, what we found was that people who had a low interest in physics, when they were supported with um, a classroom that was infused with a lot of triggers for interest and support to engage, that they performed at the same level as people who had more developed interest at the beginning of the term. I mean, and this is relative to themselves as control subjects in an earlier class. That's actually quite powerful. You know, we actually do know that interest can make a huge difference. But we also know that um, a person can bring interest to the class and the amount of interest that they have is not necessarily going to change. But the kinds of things that the teacher does in the context mm. can actually affect how they engage and their performance. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Well, this just goes back to what you were talking about earlier, which is it's not like you either have interest or you don't. Um, it's it, it really depends on a lot of things, the environment, the teacher, what the classroom has in it, probably what the other students are doing. Right. Uh, it, it just seems like interest can be affected in a lot of ways. I, it's nice because um, I think so, a lot of people, sometimes including myself, tend to think of interest as this almost fatalistic thing. You either have it or you don't, and there's yeah. really no way to predict it. There's really no way to control it. And you're saying, no, it, it's, a, it's a lot more well, I, uh, nuanced and flexible. Yeah, I think, um, you know, like if you're organizing a classroom, you know, sort of thinking of people as having less developed interest, and then there are people that have more developed interest, and knowing that the less developed interest people can actually 
develop an interest, right? So right. we also in this physics study, not only did the low interest people actually perform at the same level as the high interest, but their interest changed. But there are a number of things that you can do in a classroom um, that actually will contribute to interest continuing to develop for those that have developed interest and yeah. can trigger interest for those with less. Um, so things like providing rich tasks or problems, right? People are not so big on like memorization. Um, competition yeah. might actually introduce some momentary interest, but it's not like sort of going to be a long lived or the kind of thing that a person will want to go work on individually. Challenge that's within range. A person yeah. who has a developed interest really doesn't want to work on things that they already know how to do. You know, they yeah. want to continue to grow their knowledge. Um, and people who don't have interest, you know, once they see that they can participate in the challenge, they just need to see that they can be successful. Right. Know? And that's where use of group work or just individual feedback can really make a huge difference um, in terms of providing the kind of support that enables a person to keep trying. Yeah. Trying to explore and engage is huge. Um, having the opportunity to find your own connections to the content and, and having those legitimized, right? So in a rich or an open-ended task, allowing different pathways through it, um, some mm. of which wouldn't necessarily be what the teacher might have recommended, you know, but if they've made a serious connection and if you can talk with them and there's some logic to it, that's actually... You know, allowing that one to go, even if it's a little bit haywire, may actually yield a kind of connection that's important for the individual. And then, right. you know, just I think um, learning contexts that promote multiple ways of engaging, because in fact, the other thing that really needs to happen with interest in order for it to continue to develop and deepen is that you just need a lot of practice, right? But if you think about it, the person who has a passion, who works really hard at something, Every time they re-engage and keep working on something, it's not exactly the same task for them. So when we often think about practice, we think about it as this rote, drill and kill kind of act exercise where you're doing exactly the same thing. But in fact, a person who's got a developed interest, and this is actually what we want to support our students to do, I think, you know, what they're doing is re-engaging and they're not re-engaging the same thing, but they're setting a little challenges for themselves that actually are different but also, you know, end up with the net yield that they've got a lot of practice. They've developed skills, they have knowledge, and they actually have increased interest and in more things that they want to figure out. Yeah, it seems like a, a practicing the same thing again and again would induce yeah. more or less boredom in that yeah. person and probably quash a little bit of their interest. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas, like you said, as long as the challenge is in range, uh, in right. a doable range for you, if you keep upping it and keep upping it, right. as long as it doesn't step out of that range, it seems like that would be interest inducing. Right generally. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about then um, yeah, the specifics. We just got into a few of the things that teachers can do to, um, I guess, develop interest in students. You know, one of the things I hear a lot, I'm sure you hear a lot, and because we're both in a college of education, I think, um, with future teachers and, and teachers in general is the importance we tell them of getting to know your your kids' interests and figuring out ways to connect you're subject to that interest. But of course, teachers rightly point out that that ends up or could end up being a really daunting task because you have 20 at the low end, 30 plus at the high end students in the same room, several classes a day. Often um, all of those kids have very different interests. So, so first of all, what should we tell those teachers who feel like, my gosh, this is going to be 
exhausting if I have to connect everything I do to kids' interests. Well, I guess um, there are a couple of things just to pull apart the pieces. Um, I think that, first off, a teacher is teaching a subject. So it's physics or social studies or language arts. And the teacher is actually supporting the person or students in the class to be on board with that subject matter. So it's not about having to relate it to ice hockey and you know, playing the piano mm. and uh, kicking a soccer ball, but rather it's about supporting language arts or physics. And then I think you move to, all right, so how do we do that? Well, you know, first figuring out your own excitement or the things you wonder about could actually be really instructive. But mm. the other piece of it is to just recognize that some people in the in the group. So if it's split out as 20 and 30, that would be great. But, you know, it doesn't always work that way. But but it doesn't mean that like you can't teach the same content, right? But just be mindful yeah. of, you know, if you're doing a demonstration, you know, that there are different ways for people to connect to that, right? So keeping things a little open-ended, giving, um, having interpretive work where you, you know, give them a problem and have them sort of notice all the kinds of things they they can can in the problem and then have them sort of talk about what they're wondering about and making sure that you get all of these out so that you're in a position to have included people and also support them to make their own connections to it mm -hmm. can actually sometimes also allow you to get more of a read on, okay, so where are they coming from? What is it that I need to be supporting them to do? The other thing you can do is, I mean, I think you can just observe a class, but you can also um, have them tell you. I mean, if we're talking about undergraduates, they can certainly tell you how interested they are. I mean, right, I'm sure it may be, uh, probably also. right. Um, the other, the other issue though is that you know students are smart and they want to keep you amused and they will say things like they're interested you know and that actually may or may not be true i mean they are and they aren't <laughs> they're interested in getting an a or they're interested in whatever but but what you really want to do is to to try to um sleuth out how much are they um engaging with will they actually go to the extra study sessions are they reading any extra readings do they think about this kind of content outside of class and if not figuring out how to support them to make connections that would want them so that they would want to do that. Right. Yeah. And that's where having them personalize the, you know, the essay that they're being asked to write or the interpretation of the lab experiment. You know, sometimes we do these things where we expect people to, you know, follow protocol and there's a specific way to write something up and that's fine. But having them talk about like why it's meaningful or you know, how it fits into some larger context is something that would enable them to actually own it, you know, and put their own mark on it. And that piece may actually be what's really critical in terms of sort of supporting the possibility of an interest. But they also need, you know, opportunities to work together and think together about ideas. And and that's where um, sometimes pairing people in a class, you know, I'm thinking sort of more K to 12 level classes, yeah. which would be somewhat smaller than 50. But what you would find is that, you know, pairing kids who actually do have a shared interest often will mean that then you can pair kids that don't really have any interest and then you can work more individually with them 
to try to find those connections, to have that conversation about, oh, and so how did you understand that? Okay, you know, and then picking up mm-hmm. and allowing that conversation to move, but having them hear that you're valuing whatever it is that they were able to make as a connection, you know, yeah. and even if they're playing with you and they're telling you what they connected to and you're taking them seriously, that can actually make it a more serious conversation, even though that wasn't where they started. You know, I mean, you really can um, figure out the connections. The other thing that's interesting about the K-12 age group that I sort of point out, because you may also have parents on uh, Mm, um, among your listeners, and that's that um, sort of before the age of eight, kids will actually try lots of things, right? We actually know that around eight to 10 years of age, kids are actually developmentally making comparisons between themselves and others that they don't make, or at least often don't make earlier than that. And what that means is that, you know, around eight years of age is when people stop playing the piano. It's when they quit um, one or another sport because they don't think that they're very good at it. It also is often when they decide they're not a math person or a science person. And at that point, it's not that they couldn't be supported to develop an interest. It's just that we need to do more work to enable them to continue to try to find ways to connect. And that piece is really critical. So the age thing, and then there's the context thing that um, both need to be attended to. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard um, developmental psychologists talk about that distinction as I think they say early years are what they, I think call discovery learning. And then the later years are what they call usually mastery learning where you're kind of pruning away some of the, you're, you're not interested in everything anymore. You're kind of interested in, you know, specific things. They become a little bit more stable. Um, I think if I recall right, I heard, uh, I think it was Alison Gopnik maybe talk about part of that she thinks is the reason that interest is in some ways related to how much knowledge you have about something. Like if you already know about something, unless you really want to go further, it doesn't really become interesting anymore because you know all the stuff about it. But once you start knowing all the stuff about it, unless you just want to go further, it's, it, it, you know, um, and that's why I think she said older kids will tend to not be interested in what they used to be interested in when they were young. Cause everything was new. Everything was exciting. And then it gets less so. Well, but I, okay. So what I would do would be to um, flesh that out a little because actually knowledge, I mean, if you're an x-ray technician, there's a way in which you have a lot of knowledge, but you may actually not be necessarily interested in what you do. You may be a jazz musician on the side, and it may actually be that you would like your x-ray technician to be a jazz musician on the side and just do the data, right? But the thing is that with kids, you know, so the knowledge, when I talk about um, developing knowledge with respect to interest in the concurrent value, the knowledge is actually information that they're continuing to seek. So if interest falls off, it means that there probably are not opportunities or challenges to continue to, to grow your interest. And so then interest will fall off, right? So that's, the, that's why older kids often will, you know, they, they have a certain amount of knowledge, but just simply having a lot of knowledge is not really having interest. Having knowledge, yeah. And the other thing is that um, the distinction you made between exploratory and mastery, I mean, I think that that distinction 
is one that gets used, right? But what I was sort of suggesting about the eight to 10 to older kid plus into adulthood is that new interests can always develop. The problem is that it requires some exploration. Right. And so we have a constrained school system in most cases. I mean, obviously, every school is not the same where students also, by the time they're in middle school, at least or late elementary they, to 10 year old age group, they start getting graded. And so what happens is kids start thinking of what they can do in terms of whether, whether they're getting A's. And so then starting to develop a new interest at that age, you know, in a subject is a little bit complicated. That's why project-based learning that characterizes middle school often can be really powerful because it gives kids sort of a, a piece for getting scaffolded into subject areas that they didn't necessarily have and allows for the development of interest unrelated in many cases to sort of an achievement de designation. But, you know, I would say that um, you do run into a problem as kids move into high school um, you know, with developing new interests because of the issue of like performance. Yeah, I, that brings up an interesting question then. Is there any research on, um, or do you have any thoughts on the relationship between interest and extrinsic motivators? So uh, if I were to give someone rewards for doing something well or penalize them for doing something poorly, uh, whether it's grades, money, tokens, whatever, does that potentially enhance interest? Does that generally detract from interest? Does that just have a neutral relationship to interest? It's a great question. Actually, my colleague, um, Suzanne Heady would love it. Um, so let me actually try answering the question. So early in the development of interest, when someone doesn't even know that he or she could have an interest, mm -hmm. rewards actually are huge. And um, and they haven't really been appreciated. But I don't think that it's about M&Ms and um, grades necessarily, mm. but it may actually be, it's about something that supports the individual to know that the efforts that they're making to understand the mathematics are going, are rewarding, right? And so they okay, need yeah. to, and it could be personal attention. It's not just praise. It's not just a pat on the back. It needs to be about the content that they're working on and how they're engaging the content. You know, right. This is work that Carol Dweck has done, you know, also. Yeah. And you're right. And the key is here, it sounds like you're rewarding the effort and the and their attention to a thing, not the performance. To the content, right. Yeah. And but but the reward is actually really important until they get to a point in their developing interest where the knowledge and value that they have for the content, so the math, if we're using that as the example, actually has activated the reward circuitry, at which point they do not need to be receiving rewards in order for it to um, to be rewarding. You know, what, ha what mm. happens is that interest becomes its own reward. Um, the other thing that's really interesting um, is that, uh, and again, so there's a paper that uh, Suzanne Heady and Judy Harakovich wrote where what they did was they really pointed out how... Um, as you develop interest, you actually are likely to be doing really well in school, right? So it's not mm -hmm. like you're not getting extrinsic rewards and recognition for your interest or and your capacity. It's just that that isn't relevant to you. Right? So rewards, yeah. So the rewards aren't counterproductive. They're just not really relevant. 
Well, I, I mean, I think they may actually be relevant because if you weren't getting them, you would actually be cognizant of it, right? But it's right. Sort of like it's not the reason you're doing it. You know, um, yes, I could give another example, but that is clear. Yeah. But I could imagine a situation where someone's interested in something that let's say they, they don't do really well on by school standards and by indulging that interest, they would get lower grades. And at some point, it seems like that would be counterproductive to their interest because they kind of have to choose. Should I indulge this interest or should I try to get better grades? Right. I mean, if they actually look at it that way. I mean, Albert Einstein was, you know, a case in point, right? He was supposed to be just a terrible student. Um, I think there are examples of a person having such developed interests that it, it um, sort of skews what they pay attention to. Um, I think that's probably the more extreme case, but it also could be that they need to figure out what the balance is. Yeah. So let's see, what about, I could imagine teachers in a classroom you had alluded to this this teacher before when you when we talked about okay you you bring in something in class you present it in a certain way you think that it's going to be really interest inducing in the kids that it, it will evoke a lot of their interest and you find that it just comes up short that kids that you thought would be really interested in this just it falls flat and then you get kind of frustrated um, so what then well actually I would not give up. <laughs> But, I, but no, I, th I think um, a lot of it has to do with, I mean, I would say, you know, sort of watching the kids or talking with them. You know, you mentioned before something that, you know, teachers can come in armed with um, more information. You know, there's there are um, sort of studies now um, where people are doing more, you know, interviews or like, um, data collection, like sort of like understanding more about like what it is that their students are, you know, why they're signing up for the class or what it is that um, that they do outside of school, the kinds of extracurriculars that they do. And, and that that kind of information about a student can actually then help the teacher to know how to shift the example that they're providing in order to help a person to sort of bridge what felt like something that they couldn't do to being something that they can do does that help um, but I, th I think um, you know there are studies there's a lovely one uh, Zoo Coates and Davidson did in uh, 2012 where they interviewed a group of eight exemplary African-American teachers and what they basically did was to describe the conditions of the learning environment and how the teachers were really promoting every kid to seriously engage and the kinds of things are not you know they're the kinds of things you'd want right with people being really caring and supportive and at the same time standing next to the desk and sort of saying come on aren't you supposed to be doing this now you know I mean, you have the nudging as well but that's a kind of caring right um, having activities that allowed multiple points of entry um, having content that was related to the kids' lives and also stretched their understanding uh, or their present understanding of what it is that was being covered in the class, right? So things like that can actually make a huge difference in terms of the experience of the class. Also asking a student, you know, yeah. is this yeah. working for you? Did you actually get it? What kinds of things are confusing? What do you think we ought to be working on next? Yeah. Don't, you know, there's a... Um, a colleague in uh, Israel, um, uh, 
Baram Tassabari, um, who actually has, you know, determined that like nobody ever has really asked kids about like what did they want to learn in the biology curriculum. We come in and with lots of ideas, right, and a curriculum that's set up, and sometimes these are, you know, at the level of the school or the district or the state. But but the problem is that if you were to ask the kids, it's not like you wouldn't probably cover all of those things. But the issue is that you might not cover them in the same order, or you know, you could actually cut to something else and come back. And um, you know, classrooms where they are organized so that kids help to develop the curriculum. So there's an example of that near here. Um, it's written up in a book called Soundings um, by Mark Springer. It's a it's an award-winning uh, middle school science program, but. This is a classroom that um, covers language arts, social studies, and science, and um, it's integrate. It's what's called integrated learning for middle school kids, and the kids actually help to develop the curriculum. And um, they name the sort of key topics that are going to be um, studied through the year. And then, what's really interesting about it is that Mark and his colleagues actually have taught this kind of a curriculum for now, probably close to 20 years. And they find that kids in eighth grade will generate pretty much the same set of tap topics. <laughs> but what's really interesting or important is that the kids own having chosen the name of those topics. Right. And then they actually put together a curriculum together with the kids. But the yeah. ownership is huge in terms of it feeling like it's mine, you know, and the, the interest that goes along with that. Yeah, I, I wonder then a lot of this, um, I think every teacher who would be listening to this it would be excited about these ideas because I think every teacher intuitively knows that interest is is a really important thing. But we often, you know, I often hear, well, we just don't have time to yeah. do that, right? We need to keep on with our instruction. I'd love to get kids to co-create a curriculum. It just takes a lot of time. And I wonder, um, I kind of worry that we undervalue the amount of time we need to take to help kids, to give them the space and tools to develop that interest. Um, I, I don't know if you would agree with that, but it feels like that's an underutilized piece in school well, curriculum. Well, I mean, I think um, having time and giving the students time is really important. You know, I think there's another part that, um, you know, I was a teacher too. I mean, I, I think that, and I mean, I still do teaching, but the, um, thing that's important is the foundation, right? So if, in fact, you want to move through a certain amount of contact content, what needs to happen is there needs to be a strong foundation, right? So the development of interest, whether we're talking about for somebody who has none, <laughs> somebody who has entered the class with some, is, you know, you need to get your foundational pieces together and then figure out what kinds of things can be options, Right. And if there's always opportunities for people to make some kind of connection, it doesn't have to be time consuming, but it and it can almost be a sleight of hand, you know, in terms of setting it up so that, like, you know, OK, I have a stronger group in the sense that they have more background and a sort of weaker group, but both of them can do this task. And this is the kind of thing that I'm I really need them to get before we can move on to whatever. And I think focusing in that way um, can actually really allow you to move through a fair amount of content. It's not, you know, I think you have to get through your content. I mean, you're, you, you're teaching in a system that expects that. Um, so it's not about like throwing the, the content out the window, but it may actually be about like, 
how you focus it, and then how you make choices about what becomes independent work or what yeah. becomes um, something that will actually set up two more things. And there's a contingency, like we have to get through this before we're able to go on to that, or we actually may have part of the class doing something at a different pace than another part of the class, because we're still working on that foundation. You know, it's, it's complicated, because you also don't want the people who don't have much background and are starting to get it to get bored either, right? So they need to be excited that they're making progress. And it's really nice if you can set it up so that they don't actually completely know how out of it they are relative to the stronger group, but that's yeah. sleight of hand. It's, it's, it's such a big issue. Is, is there any last stuff that you would want teachers or other listeners to know about interest, whether it's a misconception that maybe people sometimes have or other words of advice that, that we didn't get to yet? Um, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, Suzanne Heady and I wrote this book um, I'm not really big on self-promotion, but if people were really interested in understanding more about how interest develops, the book was written for a smart audience and all the research notes are at the end of each chapter rather than being laced throughout the entire book. And we tried to write it so that it would be able to be read and also understood. But what we deal with is like, you know, you could miss the first couple of chapters that are sort of like the kinds of stuff we've been talking about. But if you wanted to think about like sort of how interest develops and why is it that it, it feels like a paradox, the point that you were pointing to the Alison Gopnik piece, um, it feels like a paradox that as kids get older, interest decreases when you would expect that interest would increase, right? And that has a lot to do with how we organize our classrooms and, and sort of how we come into them, like our own framing of sort of what it is that we can do and, and support the students to do. I mean, clearly the students are the learners. What we want to do is to position them to be effective in doing that and understanding sort of, okay, how people have thought about that and what, they, what can be done um, might be useful. I think another point that might be really important to just be clear about is that while interest always develops in one or another discipline or topic. So when we talk about interest development, you know, it's in physics or math or biology, or it may actually be about cells and plants and uh, physiology. But the point is more that it's in something concrete, but the actual way that interest develops, right, sort of the triggering of interest and how it gets supported and sustained, that doesn't really vary across topics, right? So in other words, the mechanisms underlying the development of interest are pretty similar. Um, some disciplines, you know, actually have sort of uh, precepts or, you know, um, expectations that go along with them that sort of qualify like exactly how comparable they feel like they are, but it's not, it's not the case that they are that different. Um, and what we also know is that even though, for example, there can be gender differences or age differences, those differences are not about like how interest develops, but it may, mm. in the case of gender differences, be more about sort of a sociocultural context and, you know, girls developing particular kinds of interests, maybe right. in dolls, you know, if you want to go that direction, or, you know, and that can be different than boys, but it doesn't mean that they can't develop interest in math or science or whatever. And that the way that they develop it um, really varies. And so once once you actually understand that, 
all of a sudden, it really doesn't work to sort of think about this kid has interests, this kid doesn't. Really, it's more incumbent upon us as the people who work and support kids to develop as people um, to find their interests. We can support them. We just need to figure out how. Yeah. So in some ways, you could say, I think you're saying that interest is always in a specific thing, but interest is a general thing. So it's not like getting someone interested in art is a different process than getting someone interested in math. That's right. They yeah. actually underlying have the way that they've developed are very likely to be similar, you know, and you know, you can think about this just in terms of yourself, you know, what kinds of things are you interested in? Are you interested in what kinds of things are you not interested in? How much support have you had to get interested in things you're not interested in? Probably not too much, you know? Right. Yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation because it's such a, a big, rich, but really important topic. So I'm glad uh, we were able to talk about this. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah.